Good morning. We'll begin this morning in John chapter 14. John 14. It is good to be here with you. Uh, always good uh, to see who's here and uh, thankful for your presence here and your voice uh, in the singing and the participation of worship. It's always good. One of the benefits of coming together is to be with like-minded people uh, in a world that is very divided. And so it's good to be encouraged by all of you. And I want you to know that is certainly something that you do for me, especially when you're tired and uh, ramping up for homecoming week, right? So uh, it'll be an interesting week, fun week. And so all the prayers would be appreciated. Of course, Wednesday night we'll be having our area-wide. Uh, so we'd love to have any of the help we can get uh, with that. Uh, mainly just to come here and keep me in line, So, which is a full-time job. You can ask Whitney. She, she'll probably tell you. Uh, but it is good to be here with you, and, and we're thankful for the opportunity to gather together. Uh, and you know, there's a there's a statement in John 14 that is going to be kind of the framework of what we're looking at today. We'll make our way to Deuteronomy as well. But in John chapter 14, Jesus is in the process of trying to comfort his disciples. He has delivered the message yet again that uh, the time has come that there is a day where he'll be crucified and be raised on the third day, and that is definitely not the plan that the disciples had in mind for the Messiah, right? The Messiah was going to come. There would be no death. There would be no dying. What is is a dead Messiah good for other than confusion and and ending a movement? And what happens is is this Messiah dies, and he creates the greatest movement in, in history, the changing of many lives. And if you're a Christian today, uh, that is the moment when Jesus comes out of that tomb is why you are here today. Uh, Paul says that if he did not raise on the third day, we are to be most pitied uh, because we, what's the point, right? There have been a lot of people who claim to be the one, the Messiah, the hero, the Savior that died and they were dead all over like Rover and they stayed that way. And that was the end of the movement. And we serve a risen Messiah. And here he is encouraging them of what the future holds. And it's really echoes of things that have been around since Moses, right? Since Moses and Abraham. But in verse 15 he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. A lot of people today love the idea of the Lion of Judah, but they like a toothless one. They like one that is not going to push the envelope or make their life uncomfortable or be a little dangerous and ask us to do some countercultural things. And so they love, I'm sure they love, the first part of John 14, but the loving and keeping my commandments. What does loving me look like? It is keeping my commandments. That's what it is. And so how can we know the commandments if we don't read them and we don't invest time in knowing them? If you love Jesus, but you don't know His commandments, you love a Jesus that is not the actual Jesus. 
He is not this toothless lion who we let out of the cage on Sunday morning. We let him out on Wednesday night, maybe. And uh, then we put him back in there. He is a God who is God all the time. And he's the God of our lives. And as he has told Micah, he says to Micah, and Micah says to the Israelites and to us today in Micah chapter 6 and verse 8, he has told you. He has told you. And in telling, what is the expectation? That you will listen, that you will hear and obey, that you will be moved to action. And so we can say we love Jesus and we got to know Jesus all day long, but if we're not invested in what he's told us to show our love to him, then we're not really, right? We can say that all day long, but our actions backing it up. I can say I love Whitney with all my heart, and if I mistreat her verbally, physically, then you could sit there and go, well, you must not love her too much because you're mistreating her. You don't know what she even wants, more, more or less what she desires in that relationship. And so there are a lot of people who will go around, oh, I love that Jesus guy, but some of the things he said and asking me to do, I'm just not going to do. Right? And Jesus makes it pretty cut, clear cut to his disciples. If you love me, you will. There is an expectation on us and our relationship with Jesus. I believe with all my heart it is a relationship. But for some reason, we define that relationship differently than the other relationship we have. Because every relationship we have has boundaries and guidelines and limitations that we put on each other. When I made those vows to Whitney, I put a limitation and curbed a lot of my liberties and freedoms so that I will get this wonderful, amazing relationship. And so we make those commitments. We have students all the time. I can't believe I've got to wear this, this outfit to school every day. I just can't wait till I get out here and I don't have to do that anymore. And then they go get a job and they have to do that all the time to receive a paycheck. And I tell them that. I, I have to dress a certain way to keep getting a paycheck from Riverside Christian Academy. I made that agreement. I signed on the dotted line that I accept these parameters. And so we have this crazy idea that there are parts of our life that don't have guidelines and boundaries. And we have a society, unfortunately, now that is promoting that, that they think we can reach a point where we don't need those things anymore. I'm certainly not saying turn God's Word into an idol. I think people do that on occasion. I think the Pharisees may have done that, but they really didn't turn God's Word into an idol. They turned what they thought God's Word said into an idol. And so there's this aspect of paying attention to the details and being very clear in our own liberty that it is a responsibility that we have individually to pay attention to the details, to know how to find what we need to say. Well, where did he tell us? Micah says, he has told you, O oh man, what is good. Well, where did he tell us? When we were going through foster care classes, I'll never forget, and I'm sure I've used the illustration before, they took us into a room. They had all of us standing around, and the, the leader of the class just picked up a ball and started throwing it at us. And of course, I'm a guy, and my natural bent is to catch it. And she's, you're out. And, and then she'd do something, oh, you're out. And we're all standing there like, I, I, why am I out? You know, I'm kind of sore at this lady. Hey, I want to play. And, and, you know, she said, you don't know the rules. He says, when, when these kids come to your house, you have unspoken rules that you yourself don't even know. And then they come in and you expect them to know them. And you're not telling them. And so it is a huge blessing. And, and what makes God really different 
where he comes along and he says, I love you enough, I'm going to tell you what I expect of you. It really is a loving thing to tell people what your expectation is. We see it all the time in the dating world, right? Someone gets to a certain age, they get a little more blunt on that first date. Like, here are the things I'm looking for, and if that's not what you're looking for, let's just not do this anymore. You'd be amazed how many teenagers I look at and I go, the people you date is one of, the, one of those folks is who you're going to marry. What? That's how it works, generally speaking. And, and so if they're annoying you to no end right now, it's probably maybe get a little better. They're not very mature, but you've got to understand that's a very important decision you're making of who you spend time with. Oh, man, if there's one thing I can go back to high school and change, that would be it, right? I had this little girl broke my heart, and I just fought around like a puppy dog for a year of my high school. Like, man, you shouldn't be doing that. Like, this it's, is it's a time of enjoyment, a time to have fun, right? There are people out there, kids, that are chasing all kinds of things. I'm like, you know, there'll be a long time for that. Like, Lord willing, that time will come. And, and you're consumed with this thing that really may not even matter in the future and probably won't, to be honest. But he tells us what his expectation is. And don't miss that. The Bible tells us that his rules are not burdensome. They're not meant to oppress us. They are all for human flourishing. Every commandment that God gives us is to give us the best footing for the best life. Notice I didn't say the easiest. The best life possible. And a life that he guarantees us will be filled with hardship. So we go to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. And we start to look at these. And I know we've spent a lot of time in Deuteronomy. Man, I'm just love it, love it, love it, love it. And I apologize if you don't, but get with the program. So Deuteronomy 4, uh, 34. Uh, God here is speaking of his lonely, like I guess in some way, loneliness. I am God and I alone am God. Right? And one of the biggest steps that we take is going, there is a God. And the second one is, I am not Him. I am not Him. And you know that sounds like just something normal, but those are things that I remind myself every day. And the most part, I'm really thankful I'm not God. And my students should probably be very thankful I'm not God. And maybe some of you should be thankful that I'm not God, right? I, there is a God and I'm not Him. And he's making that clear here. Verse 34, Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides Him. These stories are great and they have an individual meaning, but every single one of them is an attack on the culture that says, that that really is a culture of death. That's the Egyptian culture. It was consumed with death. And that last plague comes along and we go, oh my, how could God do that? He gave them what they wanted. He honored their culture. Oh, you want the culture of death? I'll show you that I'm the God over that. But I'm a God much more concerned with providing life. And I want human flourishing. I want it to be the case. I want you to be blessed. I did these things. Did God need to be secure in who He was? No. 
I did these things for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides Him. Out of heaven He let you hear His voice. He has told you, O man, that He might discipline you. And on earth He let you see His great fire, and you heard His words out of the midst of the fire. And because He loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with His own presence by His great power, there is a God and you're not Him. That's what He's saying. I loved your fathers. How much of this has to do with who you are versus who I am and what I want for you? I'm going to be honest with you. The older I get, the more I'm so happy that it's about God and what He wants to do for me versus it's about me. I'm glad it's not about me. I'm glad that I don't have to carry the responsibility that we oftentimes put on our shoulders. Romans 12 is full of you do what you're capable of doing and God will handle the rest. As far as it depends on you, be at peace with everyone. And for people who don't like peace, that's their problem and they have to deal with it. And God will handle those things. So in Deuteronomy chapter 5, I encourage you to read it. It's a, it's a restatement of the Ten Commandments. Uh, ben will remember this comment. The big eye in the sky don't lie. As a coach... The game film was invaluable because you can tell somebody, hey, you're doing this over and over and over again, and it's not working out for you, and it's different when they watch the film and go, oh, you're right. I see myself doing that. The big eye, well, God's telling us the big eye in the sky don't lie. It does not lie. And so when you read Deuteronomy 5, that is with great benefit of what has just occurred. Hey, I told you in Exodus that this is what's going to happen. Here's the commandments. Here's what leads to a free society, a society the world has never seen, and a society that, quite frankly, the world will fight. We, we would ten times be secure over free. Right? Liberty is a value. It's something we choose to go, I value liberty over 100% security. And I'm here to tell you, if you follow the line of Lion of Judah, some of that security is going to go bye-bye. It, it's incompatible. You will do things that the world will hate, and they will make your life harder because of it. And so God tells us that. Jesus shows us that because the big eye in the sky does not lie. He knows how the world works. And so we get to Deuteronomy chapter 6, and what does He tell us? This is how you raise your children. This is how you keep the culture, free society. This is how the best uh, mono, uh, ethical monotheism is the best path to freedom and liberty and the best life possible. This is how you keep going. So you have to have these things called children, which causes human flourishing. China is on the verge of collapse because all of their working people are about to retire. And they limited for years how many kids they could have. And no one had the idea to think ahead and go, you know, this is a problem. It's probably the reason why they're not more forceful than they are in world politics. Because they know their population, first of all, you can't weaponize them because they're going to just turn on the government first. And, but then, like, we don't have the bodies. These people are going to retire. Their workforce is about to collapse. And I hate to tell you, we're not far behind them. Because we have a culture that does not promote human flourishing. I think as George Bush said, 
We have to fight the culture of death. A society of death. We promote it as being free. And it's the opposite. God has told us, oh man, what is good? From a society to the individual. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, he tells us, verse 4. We read this all the time, and I think it's important to do so. Here, O Israel, that here is not just sound waves coming across our eardrums. Like when my kids talk to me or I talk to them, it's just sound sometimes coming across my eardrums. It is hear, listen, and obey. It is all tied in. Jesus, when He says, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, is just telling something they've repeated themselves ever since they was in pre-K. Right? Friday morning, you come see it on display. Why do we sing on Fridays? Because we're just reestablishing what they're taught every day of the week in song, in a way they can remember it. And so, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God. Right? He, he your God, our God. And notice when they say this, our God. It is the collective. We are in this together. When we sing songs and, and we hear each other's voices, he's exactly right this morning. I want to hear your voice. I want to know I'm not alone in the fight. And when we don't sing, there's a lack of value in who God is and understanding of who He is, and there's a lack of understanding our influence. Right? I know there are several kids that when they sing on Friday, I don't want them near certain other ones because they're just not going to sing, and these folks won't sing. And so we have influence. Is it an influence of life or is it of death? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. One of the greatest questions you have to answer individually, is God lovable? We're commanded to love God because God understands that that's not easy. There are going to be things that we wrestle with and we shake our fist at God. And you know what? He's big enough to handle it. He's a big boy. Boy, I guess. Big. Big enough to handle it. For us to be upset with Him and disagree as long as we remember He is God. But He's ours. You know there's a difference about that, right? Like, you can't pick on my little brother. I can pick on my little brother because he's my little brother. But you can't. And so there's an aspect of this collective community that we need with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Verse 7. Parents, you are the number one educator of your kids. I'm just an added investment. The number one. You can send them here and come to church here. We can do chapel every day. We can sing on Fridays. We can spend an hour, hour and a half teaching Bible. Some days that's difficult for me. I'm, I'm as scattered brain as the next guy. And that's one. But if you never have that conversation with them, it will never have the same impact. I've had students beg, coach, my parents won't let me go to church. They just won't let me. And I think, why are they sending you here? I don't know. You know, maybe we are the church to them, and I guess there's an aspect of that. But if you never mention it, right? I guarantee you my kids know I love football, right? It's in my room. It's at home. We spent all day. It was on TV. Even in the background, we weren't paying attention. But if that's all they ever know that I liked or loved and, and we never talk about God to them, we can send them to school and graduate from here and there'll be something like him. 
It is the parent's role. I am not here to replace. I remember as a, early as a young youth minister in my 20s when I really thought I had everything figured out. And I still understood, hey, I am not this kid's dad. I am not this kid's mama, and I'm not supposed to be in that role. And if I am, there is something woefully wrong in this situation. Like, you have to have that conversation. And you, you don't have to have a PhD in it to talk to your kids about it. You don't have to be right and have every answer. I don't. One of the greatest things I ever say to kids in Bible classes, I don't know. Here's some ideas. But I don't know for sure. It's okay for that. I think we have education down to where we have to have all the answers. And really, a lot of our answers turn out 20 years later to be just dead wrong. Like, we're still all figuring this thing out. There's no room for process anymore. You shall teach them diligently. I, don't, I think diligently like, is kind of in itself telling you, you won't know everything. But if it's important to you, it's going to be important to them. Now, once again, as a preacher, right, I, I do and say a lot of things at church that may not follow me home, and my kids will see the hypocrisy. Inevitably, there is some. They will see it. And so it's important to be able to go, I'm sorry, I blew it. But I'm diligently, and they need to get that feeling without me saying it, diligently seeking to do what is righteous in the eyes of God. And so your kids are going to do things either because you did them or in spite of it. But the last thing I want my kids to do when they make their own decision, and it's coming one day, right? We all do. Because I don't want them to go look at me and go, he didn't do everything in his, his, his power to help me know Jesus. If they choose to go to hell, and obviously I, that's the least I want them to do, they can do about anything else, and I'll find a way to be happy. That's devastating. But I don't want them to be able to go, they didn't give me every opportunity to know who Jesus is. That's it. Right behind, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I want to hear that. I'm selfish. That's what I want for myself. But I don't want anybody able to go look at me and go, you didn't do everything you could that they would know Jesus. And maybe they just chose poorly. Wouldn't that be great if no one could say that about any of us? That number one, hey, I, I didn't like that Travis guy. And there's plenty not to like. And there's days where I look in the mirror and I don't like that Travis guy. But one thing he was about was Jesus. And the commands he gave us. Man, I can live with that. I can die with that <laughs> and, and be a happy person. But if you're like me, there's a long way to go. But the beautiful thing is, is it's a long way to go, but we're not alone in the process. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, God through Moses tells us, Who has saved you by his outstretched arms? It's pretty neat, right? I don't have to make that illustration if you know where I'm going, but I will. Jesus' outstretched arms are not in a violent manner that, that one day if we choose to disavow Him and we don't live for Him and we choose another path, then yes, He will come back and it will be a tooth-filled Lion of Judah. Don't get me wrong. But He has offered through His outstretched hand peace and love and joy and happiness that we someday will benefit for eternal, eternally. 
wrap up our time together, John chapter 6 and verse 68, Jesus questions the loyalty of His disciples. Will you leave me too? And Peter says some of the best words that he probably ever said, if, if, if they're any better. He, he wrote some good ones. To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter, at some level of understanding, and a man who will mess up many times after this statement, which gives me a lot of hope. I've sinned way more since 12 than 0 to 12, right? And so we mess up, but there's an aspect of trusting who has the words of eternal life. Even when we don't understand them, even when we mess them up, even when we get them mixed up, God has got that. Even while you were yet a sinner, you had done nothing good in the eyes of God. His Son came and died for you. And yes, like Phil, I think about the times where I sin, I mess up, and and, and if God, if Jesus wasn't on the throne, then yes, I could impact Him. I know the Hebrew writer talks about, right, we, we crucified Jesus anew. But I want you to understand that's, that's really metaphorical. He, he's on the throne of God. And nothing we can say or no laws we can pass or any action that we do changes that. We need to think about the consequences of our sins. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to throw that out the window. We understand Jesus is at the right hand of God. He is sovereign. There's nobody, anything we can do to change that. And I'm really happy. And that's what we rejoice in this morning. If there's a way that we can assist you this morning, this is a song of encouragement. Maybe that's all you need is a song of encouragement. Like, hey, last week was rough. Today I'm not feeling it. But this song has given me whatever it takes. Hey, we'll take it. But if there's something that we can do, wrap our arms around you, love on you, we're going to also have shared time. We'll pass the microphone around where we share the victories in our life, the things we wish were better, things that we need help with. Uh, we encourage you to do that. And that's what this song, when you hear our voices singing, that's us coming together and going, hey, we've been there before. We've experienced hardship and God has brought us through. So if there's a way we can assist you, we invite that either as we stand and sing or here in a minute when we pass the microphone.